0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding on air live with Jeff Gannon. And we could call him a reoccurring guest this time because he has been on the podcast a few different times. Jacob McDonough. How how are both of you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Jeffrey, how's it going in your world? How are you? Good? Very good. Yep. Good. So we uh, don't ever bring on guests onto the podcast. So I'm going to call you the official reoccurring guest of Focused Compounding, Jacob, because you've been on uh, in the past and we have a lot to talk about. And um, before we jump into that, just to, uh, I guess, go back... Uh, In the past, you were on a few years ago, and um, we talked about a few different things. You uh, manage money, and you wrote a book that Jeff and I talk a lot about on this podcast, Capital Allocation, right here. Wow, Um, right there. I tell a story that the first time that Jeff read this book, we were on a research trip. He finished it, and then... The next day, I realized, uh, I noticed that he was back to page one and reading it again. <laughs> so, I don't know how often Jeff reads uh, the same book, you know, cover to cover, uh, one after another, but I think that that probably says something, Jeff. You probably don't do that too often, do you?
1: No, it's a great book, and uh, I have, I got that copy from Jacob personally on the trip. Yeah. Uh, we met in a hotel lobby there, yeah.
2: And I will say, m- multiple readers told me uh that they heard Jeff read it multiple times, and that was kind of the the sales pitch and so I think that was huge marketing and I think I'll, I swear on one of the podcasts I heard you say you forgot a book on that trip, so it was the only book you had, so I think uh-uh. people kind of didn't hear the part where maybe you know that was your only option, so that really
0: helped me. no no, no, of course not he He had a suitcase full with you know twenty or thirty other books, so mm-hmm. that's that's not true no, we don't have to add that part we'll cut that out, but anyways. Cool, man. Well, yeah, thank you so much for coming back on. And, you know, there's some uh, new stuff going on in, in, and, you know, your world on what you're doing. And, um, you know, we're gonna talk a little bit about that here today. But maybe before we go into that, just talk to our listeners about, you know, what you do, what you're interested in your your money management firm, the way you see the world and basically like your story, just a quick pitch on who you are and how you got to, you know, everything that you're doing here today.
2: Yeah, thanks. Well, I went back and checked, and it was September 2020 last time I was on, so almost coming up on three years. So I'll mark my calendar for 2026, and I'll be back. <laughs> um, but, uh, no, it's good to be, good to be here. I, uh, I manage capital in a separately managed account structure, uh, which has been a lot of fun with that structure just to keep overhead costs low as uh, AUM starts out a little on the lower end. Uh, but I've had a lot of fun doing that. Um, coming up on two years, I've been doing doing that, and I wrote the book Capital Allocation back in it, published in May 2020. So just crossed the, the three-year mark there as well. So, um, so that's great. And um, and I just started the 10K podcast. I've done three episodes so far, so it's still new. But I started with the 1970s for Geico, and um, I'm in the middle of researching the early years of General Motors, uh, the 1918 annual reports, the oldest one I have. Um, trying to go that point all the way through maybe the thirties, uh, just cause it's a pretty fascinating time period. You got the birth of a new industry, uh, you have dominant Ford motor company and they kind of lose, lose, uh, ground to GM. Then you have the great depression. So it's kind of a lot of interesting different time, uh, different things going on in that time period. So that's kind of what I'm, what I'm working on next, but, um, but it's fun. I just enjoy going through historical annual reports. Um, I mean, Great to look at write-ups and, and reports in the present day, but it's just it's just nice to uh, go back on the old ones and put in perspective some things that are going on. Maybe look at the '70s when inflation was was pretty high and see what happened to companies, um, and also yeah, good and bad companies, companies that kind of were went bankrupt or went close versus and companies that had a great history. It's kind of nice to mix in all that and um, think through maybe. What would have, uh, would I have invested back in this time period? Would I have missed some of these red flags? Uh, stuff like that. So it's, I enjoy doing it. And I finally decided to uh, make it in podcast form.
0: Yeah. So you started a podcast recently. Uh, the 10K Podcast is the name. And we'll link to everything in the description. First of all. Uh, I think that's an awesome name for a podcast. I was like, wow, why uh, hasn't this name been uh, taken before? That's it's great for what you're doing. And the tagline to your podcast is analyzing antique annual reports and collecting fine financial statements. Um, So I think that's awesome. And so far you have uh, episodes out about the earlier earlier days of um geico or at least uh ben graham's uh experience with geico and uh you're going through the years and going one by one uh through the annual reports so back to you know um when he got in- uh, involved in the company so maybe we could start there and you know um first of all i mean like why did you decide to start a podcast i'm kind of curious to hear about that
2: yeah yeah, that's a good question. Um, and so I think it comes back to the book I wrote. Like I mentioned, it's it's been three years. Uh, I loved the process, learned a lot, and I really thought I'd write a second one, and that that's never happened. Um, and so I had a few ideas, started a little bit of research on a few, wrote even a tiny bit on a few. Nothing really s- stuck with me. Nothing got me as excited as I was for uh, the first book, uh, Capital Allocation. Um, and so that's one. But then eventually I realized... Um, <clears throat> that it was less about the output of getting a book out there. It was more that I really wanted to recreate how I felt, how much I enjoyed the first book, the process, and also how much I learned for it, through it. And um, you guys talked about a podcast Todd Combs did at the Berkshire Annual Meeting. Uh, He was interviewed by Nebraska Furniture Mart people. And uh, in that podcast, he talks about actively consuming information versus passively. And I think at some points, I'm guilty of more of the passive um, consuming of information, just whatever stock write-up you come across, whatever company you see or, or news articles that hit you, you know, you're reading a lot of stuff. Maybe you're, I'm not always taking notes and, and just kind of reading what what hits me. With the book, I was researching, writing a lot of notes, spending a lot of time thinking about what I read, then having to write it down or talk about it. It's just a very different learning process. Um, and so basically I end up, going, you know, it doesn't matter what the end result is, if I write a book or not, I want to try to really get back to that active process of note taking and thinking more deeply about what I'm reading all the time. Um, so that was, that was one thing. And then two, um, there's a great podcast by David Senra called Founders Podcast. Have you guys listened to that at all?
0: Yeah, I've listened to a few. Yeah,
2: Yeah, it's good. In an interview, uh, David mentions, um, that podcasting is building relationships at scale and that quote really stuck with me because especially when I think of you guys focus compounding like I've only talked to you in person a couple times but I feel like I know you really well almost Mm -hmm. in an embarrassing way uh, since you don't you know know me quite as well but I've listened to so many hours of you guys talk it's like okay I I really feel like I got to know these these guys so I think what you're doing is building relationships at scale and um, it doesn't really matter how many what the, the audience ends up being, there's still some great relationships you can build. If it's five people, 10 people, a hundred people, it does, does, doesn't exactly matter. So thinking about less, what's your audience going to be? Um, but um, thinking it more as building relationships is huge. Cause maybe you think, all right, there's already enough podcasts out there or I can't match what Jeff and Andrew do. So maybe you'd think not to do a podcast, but if you think about it as relationships, no one's ever like, all right. There's enough relationships out there in the world. I won't won't try to make any relationships or enough conversations happen in the world. I I won't have any more conversations. It's the podcast is more just like maybe a, a few relationships could build from it, and those two things could, together, like making my process more active and also you know might might build a few relationships from It's kind of kind of how the podcast came
0: about. That's awesome. No, and I, I think that's great. And I mean, you're um, you know, your first few episodes are great and everyone should go listen and you know we'll uh dive into that now i mean so i'm kind of curious why geico why did you uh start with geico for um you know your your first company that you're profiling
2: yeah geico there's so many interesting things that happened in the 70s um and one thing that really sparked actually um in omaha i had to give a a few talks and um i was kind of prepping it'd been a while since i wrote the book so Talks on on my book is what I was doing. So I went back and listened to the podcast I did with you guys back uh, in September 2020. And you guys asked some good questions on Geico that a few I didn't have the answer to. And a few things came up in that conversation. And I was like, wow, I could really dig deeper into these annual reports and get those answers is one. Um, And two, it's just such a fascinating time period from a lot of aspects. Like you got Ben Graham involved, Warren Buffett involved um they have such a great history then they almost go bankrupt then they have such a great history again it's there's just so much to the story and um like ben graham it's it's so interesting that he was he's more known for like the net net cheap stocks uh not very concentrated and yet he bought half of geico in his fund and it was a fifth of the fund 20 percent position and he held it basically forever um Very unusual for his track record, so that's interesting. Um, In the postscript to the Intelligent Investor in 1973, they published a new edition. And he wrote in the postscript about Geico. And at that time, 1973, it was up over 200 times, I believe. Um, Someone sent me something. I believe it got up to 290 times. I'm pretty sure someone sent me uh, information on that. But um, he never sold. He said... It was, I think it was a pretty cheap investment right away, but what he wrote in The Intelligent Investor was that very quickly the valuation got high enough he would have sold it, but he said, it felt, he said something along the lines of it felt like a family business. Basically, he felt like he was so involved, uh, he, he felt a loyalty to it, and he didn't sell. Um, and so he held all that time, and um, he said in 73, he's writing that the profits from Geico exceeded everything else in his career. So that alone is fascinating. But then two years later, Geico's basically bankrupt. Um, so that's, that's a crazy twist to the story too. Um, <clears throat> and then after that period, it, it was a great buy and hold kind of, kind of situation as well. And so, so many questions kind of pop up in my head of, you know, you want to be a long-term investor. You want to buy and find a great business to hold forever. You don't want to water your weeds and cut your flowers, um, as they say. But still, you need you don't want to uh, have a 200 bagger that gets cut down to basically zero. You also don't want that, too. So I really want to dig in what an investor could have seen in this time period, what were the red flags, um, and just kind of go deeper than maybe I did in the book.
0: In one of your uh, podcasts, I don't know if this was on 73 or 74, but basically you're being in- intellectually honest about it where you had said, hey, I think if I were looking at this at that time, I probably would have been like, oh, this is a great time to invest. And then the following year, the stock was down 85% or something like that. And it just shows how hard all of this is because you could have been like, oh, this is, you know, a slam dunk or just uh, a great opportunity. And then bam, you know, you're down 85%. And you could say, well, you know, oh, even if you held in the stock uh, over time, you, you, you did great and it became a great investment. And that was only over a year or whatever. And it's very short term, but The emotions that go into that and being down 85% would just be, I mean, mind-numbing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It was down 75% and then it got down another 85%. So yeah, for sure in the podcast I mentioned, um, some of maybe my biases, when I hear Geico, great business, down 75%, they had 28 straight years of underwriting profits and then one bad year of underwriting. They had a $5.9 million underwriting loss. But they still had positive net income. And then eventually the stock's down 75%. Like just hearing that alone, I'm very interested in a stock like that to research further. So hopefully I wouldn't have bought Geico at that point. But honestly, yeah, I would have been very interested in a stock like that. Um, And I think if you're an expert in the insurance industry, there's enough red flags now after I've done this research where, uh, and it may be hindsight bias too, where hopefully an insurance expert. Would, would know to avoid the situation that maybe I, I wouldn't have before doing this research. But yeah, it's um, down 75%. It can definitely go down a whole lot more um, after that and Geico proved that. Um, yeah, and, and one question I have for you too, maybe even before hopping into Geico too much is um, being a long-term investor, balancing doing your maintenance work on a stock, staying long-term. I think so many people struggle with like the act of constantly verifying the stock and constantly keeping up with it, that act alone almost influences you to be more of a short-term investor. Maybe same with like always flipping through new stock ideas. I think the act of doing that could make you more short-term oriented. So it's like this balance of you need to stay long-term, but you need to keep up with Geico when they're um, you know going through these difficulties in the '70s. You know, if you if you were really uh, yeah, it's that balance. How do you balance that? I guess is one question. Maybe before we even jump in, you guys have any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. So um, the the thing with Geico that you're describing there is a lot was changing, and you talk about it in the podcast they were growing very fast. There was big changes in the regulatory environment. Um, you know, a lot more no fault, and they had assigned risk to them, and all of that. And they're taking on uh, a, and there's lots of inflation, right? And all of that's happening at the same time for companies that don't grow that fast. Um, if, you know, Geico's business is all the seasoned part of the business and none of the assigned part, you know, um, I, I I don't know that you have to do that much maintenance or that something like this could have happened very quickly. Right. But the danger with an insurance company and with a bank that's growing fast or something like that is a lot of the business is actually new and it can go bad really fast. Right. Um, so I think that's a big part of it. And then the other part is also, You know, you talk a little bit about management and all that. Later on in the story, the thing that is really important for Buffett that gets overlooked in that is the change in management to someone who's really active and able to take action quickly, right? And so some of the things that might keep someone like Buffett away from Geico when he's looking at it sure is the rule of thumb that he talks about, that he did some rules of thumb in terms of looking at them under-reserving, right? But it also can be talking to the people and realizing that they're moving way too slow on this and that they aren't taking it seriously enough. We've talked about that with banks, the thing that concerned me in the last year and a half or so is more not the numbers that they reported, but actually talking with management or hearing earnings calls and seeing how relaxed they were about the uh, interest rate risk, right? So if they're really worried about that, then, um, uh, then you're gonna have a different feeling about it that they're on top of the risks. So one story that
0: I always think about when I think about GEICO, because I think it's a funny story. I was reading an interview of Walter Schloss and he was talking about his experience working for Graham. And he was kind of making a joke about the fact that Ben Graham, he bought GEICO purely on like a cheap basis. It was an asset play. And he was like, you know, when he bought it, he basically turned around and looked at Walter and was like, well, if it doesn't work out, we could always sell. There was no thought about the long-term prospects, the durability, you know, the return on invested capital going forward, what it could turn into. It was purely, well, it's cheap, and you know, in the event that we have to sell, we could always get out of it. Did you go back to you know that time period? Are you familiar with when he first uh, bought into it? I mean, we know that it turned out to be, you know, you said 200x or whatever, very successful investment. But I think it's just funny that. You know, fate loves irony, or whatever people like to say. His most successful investment was one that he really didn't think too hard about. It was bought purely because it was cheap, and you know, he wrote the book on just only buying very cheap investments. So I just thought it was kind of ironic.
2: Yeah, I do know in the Intelligent Investor he he did say it was cheap on an asset and earnings basis. I don't know how cheap. Um, I think, like you said, I think he mentioned to Walter Schloss that maybe they could liquidate it and get their money back. I think there was a chance of that. So, I mean, it was cheap. It didn't, um, maybe exactly match his normal style of investment. And in, especially in terms of, um, how much money he allocated to it. Uh, part of that could have been because, uh, family was looking to sell and they might not have wanted to sell off pieces of the business. They wanted like all their shares sold. Um, but I don't have any actual financials from that period. And I, I don't even know exactly how they got public. I know Graham, Graham Newman Corp had to spin off, you know, distribute the Geico stock to um, the, the fund shareholders or, you know, the fund investors. So I don't know if that's kind of how it became public through that way. Um, I was curious if, Jeff, if you knew anything further there, too.
1: No, I don't know the answer to that one. I mean, I know that they did that. And that's also part of... Uh when Graham's saying that they, all the profits, you know, that most of the profits uh, of his career came from that. It's important to keep in mind that Graham Newman, they, um, you know, there are two parts of it, but what they did basically is they paid out a lot of their capital gains and stuff instead of retaining it. So he didn't grow the fund. Whereas with Geico, he and many other people kept all of it. So it's not just that it had really high annualized returns, which it did, but also that one of it was compounding, whereas the other one he would return capital, which I think Schloss would do that too sometimes with return capital keep the fund at a reasonable size. So Geico got to a very unreasonable size in terms of allowing it to compound. It had both higher uh, compounded returns than the rest of the investment, but also the other stuff he did, he didn't keep it compounding at 20% a year or whatever all the time. He paid out a lot of that to people.
0: Yeah. So, you know, let's talk about like the background uh, to Geico in 19... 19- uh, 74. So we talked about, he basically wrote that they were up 200%. It was one of the most successful investments he ever made, or it was the most successful investment he ever made. Uh, and that was in 1973. He was writing about this. And then two years later, uh, Geico was bankrupt and struggling to survive. So, you know, maybe give us a background to what happened, what put them in that situation. And then, you know, ultimately, how did they get out of that?
2: Yeah, so um, yeah, so Buffett uh, went and knocked on the doors at Geico when he was a student and got to meet with Lorimer Davidson, uh, who became CEO. And, and Lormer Davidson stopped and, and retired in 1970. So the new management took over, and that's who was uh, running the business here in 1974 in the annual report I first looked at. Um, and so this is about 25 years after Buffett first invested. Um, 32 straight years of policies and force growing. Um, they just had their first underwriting loss in 28 years. So an incredible 30-year run of growth, nonstop growth, nonstop profitability. Um, I mean, that's, that's pretty rare. Um, underwriting loss of $5.9 million in 1974. But they had investment income, so they were still profitable on a net basis, 17.5% return on equity. Um, and so, you know, it's a negative year. Management talks about inflation's tough, tough economy, but, you know... Things are are okay. We still are profitable on a net basis. You know they're uh, not sounding any alarms by any means. But double digit inflation. And when I'm reading this report, maybe I'm being naive. naive maybe some hindsight bias. But they talk about how for a couple of years in a row, auto repair costs and medical service expenses are you know double digit increases in expenses. The CPIs increase for a couple of years in a row at a double digit pace. The prices they're charging on their policies were up less than 1% in 73, 1% in 74. It just seems like that's it, a major red flag right there um, because insurance, you could have a great history, but it's always a constant battle in terms of the risk you're taking on and the rate you're charging or um, you know, the expenses you're going to have versus the rate you're charging. It takes a little bit for you to be able to... There's a time lag where you can increase your prices. I mean, they might not be able to renew for another year i mean i think policies were about a year back then and so you have a little bit of a lag of when you can increase prices it's not like maybe a restaurant where the next day hopefully you could maybe charge higher on the menu Um, but then also costs um, are rising fast it's all costs are also an estimate too so it's a lag in when you know what your costs are but still it's a constant battle in insurance of inflation and costs versus what you're charging and so it just seems like to me one of the main red flags is you kind of Constantly, as an investor, maybe have to be watching uh, inflation, expenses, and also like how the prices of policies are changing at, at that company too. Because just a couple of years of this for Geico, profit margins are not very big in insurance in the insurance business. So just a couple of years of this can really um, present a major risk for the company.
0: And Jeff, I mean, it sounds like you know Geico, as Jacob had just said, they were they had the rose-colored glasses on. But Buffett, on the other hand, was very worried at this time. So I'm kind of curious, Chef, what do you think Buffett was looking at? And just, there was such a stark difference between GEICO and how Buffett was seeing everything. So just curious, what red flags do you think Buffett saw?
1: Well, we should probably talk a little bit about the environment in property casualty at that time, because this is the worst year for that that we're talking about starting in like 74 or so. in pretty much their history. I mean, if we look back the last 90 years or something, something like this has maybe happened three times at most. Um, So Buffett writing in some of the letters, not just about Geico, would do something where he'd look at what he thought the next year was going to be for insurance. And he knows that because of the pricing, they've already seen what the pricing is going to be. So he would give estimates of how much he thinks premiums need to increase just to keep pace with the cost increase that they have to keep the combined ratio steady which is too high at that point. But he knows that if it's going to get worse because their increases aren't enough, you know? So where you're talking about the 1% increases um, in pricing, this is because it's a very competitive environment, right? It's too competitive. A lot of the competitors are also doing really badly, including Berkshire. So maybe you could talk a little bit about Berkshire's experience with insurance at that time.
2: Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Um, Because that was one main thing too, um, as I was going through this, um 1974 Berkshire had a worse combined ratio than than Geico 1975 they're kind of close I mean Berkshire wasn't quite as bad which is kind of crazy they the the combined ratios are kind of close and yet Berkshire was never in threat of bankruptcy and they're able to able to go on the offensive during this period every crisis basically in their history they are able to go on the offensive while Geico was near bankruptcy which is really fascinating um and there's some reasons why I cover in in the the podcast why that is, but maybe first, Berkshire's combined ratio 109.8 in 1974, 115.4 in 1975. Geico had a 101.2 in 1974, so a much better a better combined ratio than Berkshire in 74, 75. Geico got to 124.2 percent uh, combined ratio in, in 75, and so Geico had an underwriting loss of 190.9 million dollars. In 1975, when its equity capital was just 140 million to start the year, um, and so it's crazy. Berkshire was profitable on a net basis because uh, they, you know, they had other operations, um, you know, uh, businesses and other industries. So they are still profitable, but they had a poor return on equity that year, maybe seven percent or something. Um, and so textiles did drag down the return on equity for Berkshire in the early days, but also this tough insurance period. I mean, is definitely one reason why, a main reason why. Um, their return on equity is pretty poor um, in this period.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the leverage that was involved, uh, especially in GEICO and then, you know, just going through a tough time and, I mean, how that added to or really, um, you know, sped up the process of going through a challenging time?
2: Yeah, leverage, I think, is the main reason why you have the comparison of how Berkshire fared in this period and GEICO. Another one is Berkshire had a quicker response. So Buffett in his letter said they – I couldn't find anything exactly about the number of policies in force, but basically he said rates were increased frequently and consistently, and yet uh, premiums written was going down. So you kind of knew policies in force was shrinking uh, because they were raising rates and still, you know, they're not seeing a <clears throat> major increase in sales. Um, so they had a quicker response. That was that was huge. But really, leverage is the main thing. Um, Geico was leveraged four to five times, while the industry average was one to was one to two times. And then Berkshire, um, their leverage was extremely unique. Uh, they're less than one times leverage, and sometimes in their history, you could even say they had uh, a tenth uh, leverage. Um, and what I mean by that is is basically um, sales compared to your capital. So for an insurance company, they usually look at premiums written compared to your statutory surplus, which is um, you know basically capital. And so each time you're making a a sale in insurance, you're taking on risk because it's a policy you might have to pay out later on. And so you can kind of compare that risk to how much equity capital you have to fall back on. Um, And so GEICO is very leveraged, and they kind of were for a decent amount of their history. I know management says um, in the filing, they admit it's high leverage, but they say this is pretty consistent throughout their history, and regulators allow it because they have – Consistent profitability and conservative investment policies um, and so um, <clears throat> so yeah that was that was very high leverage um, so that means their sales compared to their capital is very high. And that has a, a few unique um, risks that I actually didn't even really realize until I was putting the podcast together um, that gets into the involuntary business like the assigned risk, which I mean we, we could we need to go into further too here in a minute um but um but yeah leverage and berkshire's response were two main reasons why um <clears throat> they're able to to respond better and i love thinking about berkshire's how they handle their insurance operations from a leverage perspective um just because they have such no one else has such diversified operations um where the parent company's capital compared to like the insurance revenues the parent company's capital is always huge and they have like diversified earning streams coming in. Um, it's very unique. I think it's it's the if I was going to own an insurance company, I would really want it to be more like that as opposed to Geico being leveraged. Um, and and maybe one thing with that is an insurance company's equity capital could be in stocks. And so you think about it from like an investment manager like a, a Buffett, um, your return on capital should be already achieved like a satisfactory return on capital achieved just from your stock portfolio. So it's like, as long as you could just break even on everything else, you could have negative underwriting and a little bit of investment income from bonds, break even, everything else is, is kind of on top, uh, cherry on top. So I think that's really unique to think about from a, every business, a movie theater, you think about return on capital, how much did I invest? How much am I returning on this? It's like the insurance It's for someone like Buffett, it's not really like that because your return on capital is taken care of from your stock portfolio, hopefully, in the long term, um, as long as you don't get into trouble on in underwriting. So my main point is that you could theoretically have like a, a trillion dollars in capital and like very little sales, and you're, you could be okay because that trillion dollars could be in Microsoft and Apple or something stock, whereas a movie theater – if you have a trillion dollars added in capital to make more movie theaters, I mean, you're really going to have a, n- not a good time in that business.
1: Yeah, we should probably talk a little bit about that because um, like when Buffett discussed national indemnity, buying it, he said, you know, the only thing that matters is the price we pay for the goodwill portion of it because we would have been in in the same stocks and bonds, whether it's inside national indemnity for the tangible book that it had or outside in Berkshire, right? Um, so you talk about like how the, the equity in a insurance company is really something that you can invest just as you can invest the float too. Um, and so this means that you could get a decent return on it without necessarily making a good return from underwriting, but you have to have that capital because of the problems that could happen where you have to pay out more. Um, this is an important thing. And when we talk about banking things or insurance things, I mean, I think in a recent podcast, I said, if you look at banks that failed, some of them had some of the highest capital ratios. Right. But they did other things wrong that caused the failure. If you don't have losses, you don't really need that capital. You don't. I mean, Geico wouldn't have tapped that capital at all for actually for. I guess if they had 28 straight years, then they wouldn't need it for 29 or something that it was negative, you know, because they only had a small underwriting loss relative to capital in the one year. So, I mean, maybe you could talk about that in terms of the risks that Progressive and Geico take and what and the returns that they get versus something like Berkshire or other ones that write it closer to one to one. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, that's interesting to bring up national indemnity, too, because I do know. They kind of pushed their capital a little bit hard, too. Maybe not quite as much as Geico, but, I mean, they still had a decent amount of leverage. They might have been two or three times levered or something as a small company before Buffett got involved. And then, um, you know, so a company like Berkshire, maybe the parent company now, with their equity capital, national indemnity was was pretty safe. But still, I mean, um, on a subsidiary level, I don't know exactly if Buffett, well, there was a few periods he put capital directly into the subsidiary. But, um, you know, he could have kept some excess capital <clears throat> in the parent company, invested it elsewhere, other acquisitions. Or, I mean, he could have done that and allowed national indemnity still to be just as levered as they were before his acquisition. Um, I guess it, it didn't really matter if he, he put equity capital into the insurance subsidiary or had it in the parent company other than maybe what regulators would want to see. Um, and so maybe during this period, National Indemnity—you know—you never know—could have gone gone bankrupt if they never got acquired by Berkshire in this period. If they were levered just as much, and we can tell, they went through struggles. They had a really bad combined ratio during this period, um, you know. So if it wasn't part of Berkshire, that that company might not have survived. Um, and yeah, Progressive is someone today who looks a little bit more, uh, maybe not quite as levered as Geico. I actually don't know their leverage today, but generally they've always operated more like how Geico did in this period where um, they're a little more conservative maybe um, from at least in the regulator's mind on the investment side of things, but they are much more leveraged in terms of their premiums to their, to their capital. Um, But they've had a great underwriting track record too. Progressive has, but I mean, just like we see with Geico, I mean, you you can have 28 straight years of great underwriting and, and get into trouble someday. So as a progressive shareholder, I think, it, I'm not, but if someone is, they really need to study this period for Geico. I think to, um, um, you know, sleep safe at night, uh, sleep well at night. I guess.
0: Jeff, do you think National Indemnity would have survived during this period if Berkshire hadn't, uh, you know, acquired them?
1: Well, I don't know about that. Um, certainly, Berkshire. I mean, they don't talk a lot about it, but you can see the names of some. Uh, Presidents of companies disappear and even References to companies disappear so I Think their urban auto and stuff was very Bad and um, I Think the original national indemnity which Also is heavy in the same sort of business Actually probably did better Than some of the stuff that Berkshire Started up and added on in new states I Think those results are probably really horrible In fact the loss ratio Must have been over a hundred in some of them to when They first started up and I don't know that some of them got It down because if you think about it they weren't actually that big a part of Berkshire and yet they seem to be having an effect on the overall results you know so the stuff they started up I think did pretty badly and and Buffett's talked about that saying you know when he ran the insurance business that it didn't do that well you know that it's it's when Ajit comes in that it does a lot better and remember he took on national indemnity and they made some changes but you know the CEO stayed on for a few years and you know, it was already an established business that way. The the starting insurance companies up from scratch has not worked that well for Berkshire, I don't think.
2: That's a good point. Yeah, it might be being a Fairwood unfair with National Indemnity because the underwriting loss, you're right, was heavy in urban auto. So, some, you know, maybe this combined ratio wouldn't have looked so bad if they never did the expansions and starting up stuff from scratch. So, um, that's a good point. National Indemnity, the traditional original business under Ringwalt or whatever, might have done okay
0: so you know things go from you know being great to really bad and the turnaround process that rarely turns uh is underway so maybe take us through you know exactly what happened through this uh time period what changes did geico make and how did they dig themselves out of this hole
2: yeah i should say um yeah, 1974 is the first report I was just talking about earlier. The fourth quarter of that, there was a 17.3 million dollar underwriting loss. The whole year, the underwriting loss was 5.9 million. So obviously, it all came from the fourth quarter. So results were getting worse uh, quickly. Very bad fourth quarter. So that would be concerning even in 1974. But yes, but then 75 comes in and, and the results are are terrible. Like I said, 190.9 million dollar underwriting loss, which Is far more than the capital they had to start the year. They did have some investment income and stuff, so their capital was not completely wiped out in 75. But basically, it was at a level where regulators would not let them continue unless they made changes. Um, And I talk about a few things. Um, The the management in 75, they talk a lot about hiring um, actuarial consultants. They talk about how in May they announce they're going to hire them. Maybe September they finally hire them. Then by January 1976, they say they're going to raise um, the reserves and they're going to look into it further. It just seems very, very slow for a crisis situation. Um, spending months picking the actuarial consultant just seems a little crazy to me. But especially because I mentioned Buffett came in person to tell them reserves were a problem uh, even before that. Um, so so that was major. Um, and then uh, Jack Byrne comes in and things seem very, very different very quickly. Um, we can talk about too uh, them leaving New Jersey, which Jeff, I believe, that's uh, your home state, right? That's where you grew yes. up. Yes, yes.
1: This so. is famous because when I was growing up, Geico commercials ran all the time in New Jersey, and they told you at the bottom, "Not available in Massachusetts and New Jersey," so um, <laughs> that you they couldn't have it. So you know they had the Gecko and everything, but they still were not back in New Jersey because the, in New Jersey, the the bad risk pool, the the assigned. These are policies that were given to the insurers basically on the basis of like their market share essentially if you you got the profitable part of the business and so you were given in New Jersey this unprofitable part of the business which basically subsidizes high risk um, drivers in the state and so it allows them to get it at more like market rates which of course uh, are market rates for other drivers which means these are going to be creating losses for you if you take this on right and so um, Geico had started in New Jersey and had a lot of, uh, they've been in New Jersey for a while, but they had a lot of policies by the side. Was it like a quarter million? Do you remember exactly how many policies they had? It was a big number.
2: That's right. Yeah. Yeah. 250,000. Yeah. Quarter million. 9.7% of their written premiums were from New Jersey in 75, but a quarter of all their involuntary uh, policies, their assigned policies, a quarter of all of them were from New Jersey. So major.
1: Yeah. So we should talk about that because what I think is confusing to people in other countries and even sometimes when I hear people um, in the uh, U.S. talk about it is that insurance companies are regulated state by state and they may have subsidiaries that are in different states. And so there might be rules about them and everything. But like, for instance, when AIG. Uh, was uh, given a lifeline, right, Um, by the basically a takeover and stuff with, you know, the federal stuff. That was actually not triggered by them deciding to do that. They moved on that because they were going to start seizing some of it in places like I think Texas was one and some other ones that they said, like, tomorrow we're going to take over the local subsidiary because it's still solvent and we don't want the parent company contaminated. They can't take any dividends from it or anything. So it's state by state, which means that the... Regulation is different in each state, but it also means that things like the that the, um, you know Public policy that this idea that you might have some states where you have no assigned risks to you And then other ones where it's a lot less profitable to write in that state So they could be losing a lot of money in new jersey at the same time They're profitably growing someplace else and if they don't try to grow the profitable business faster But just grow everything at the same pace then you can run into problems, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So yeah, it is state-by-state basis. I've heard there is some states that are very um, tough on what you can invest in. So I think maybe Iowa or there's some states where you, they're very limited on buying stocks, investing in stocks, but Nebraska seems to be pretty lenient. And I've heard people like wonder if that's, it's like the chicken or the egg thing. If, uh, you know, Buffett being there helped help that, or, or if the reason he, I mean, he could have had, I think you can have your insurance company kind of uh, incorporated in any of the States. So, I guess if, if Nebraska was a problem, he probably could have uh, moved states with that. Um, but, but the state regulators, yeah. So that's uh, the assigned risk, like you said, is for bad, high-risk drivers who wouldn't be able to get policies at least at, like, uh, decent rates without this. So the state uh, passes them out to splits them between all the insurance companies that operate there, but based on revenue. So premiums written. And so when you think about GEICO's growth, each time – they're growing. That means they're going to take on more assigned risk involuntary policies. Um, And also their leverage, um, you know, they have a ton of revenue compared to their capital. So that means their capital is more, more than average um, affected by these assigned risk policies, the involuntary policies. And so, um, so that was, that was a huge risk and involuntary policies. I don't remember if I mentioned this already, but in 1974, um, the involuntary policies caused the whole underwriting loss, even though it was just um, yeah inven- the assigned risk was just six point seven percent of premiums written in one thousand nine hundred and seventy four six point seven percent of your sales, but it caused the whole loss twelve point four million they lost on those policies their whole underwriting loss was just five point nine million that year um, and so I feel like if you 're geico, you have to um, know that your voluntary policies, your normal business has to make up has to be profitable enough to put up with those the assigned risk um policies which due to inflation the assigned risk might uh had worse or, worse years than normal too because the regulators tell you what you can charge and they might be slow to adjust to inflation and and all this stuff and management even comments that they were predicting um expenses to come down for various reasons like people driving less gas shortages 55 mile an hour speed limit stuff like that um and so um the crazy thing to me, though, Jack Byrne coming in, his first week on the job, basically, I think it's about eight days later, a week later, is when they exit New Jersey. And so I just compare that to the previous management that took months maybe to pick a actuary consultant where being an actuary should be like your main part, job of your business. You know, you need, you need to be the expert there. Jack Byrne, within like the week, he goes into the, the office of the commissioner and he um uh, he has the the license in his pocket to do business there, so he 's pleading with him to raise rates. Um, I guess they submitted a request to to raise some of their rates and he He put on the sales pitch it didn 't work, so he immediately throws the um, the license on the desk and apparently, I think he needs permission even to stop doing business there or something so you, it, the book uh, snowball talks about him racing back to the office, sending cancellation notices out to uh, employee i mean to customers and firing a bunch of employees like that day, um, to make sure that he doesn't have to wait for regulators. So he moved very fast. Um, I compare him to like, a a wartime boss, um, versus like someone who, who's a good leader in peacetime or something. He, he seems like he needed a battle. Eventually he leaves Geico. Cause I think he needed that next challenge, that next battle, but he clearly was like ready for, to fight in this uh, time period.
0: It's funny. You think about how Buffett, you know, how he um, really portrays himself at Berkshire Hathaway, he says, I'm the chief risk officer, right? Like the buck stops with me, I'm the one that has to be thinking about these sort of things. And then you compare that to Geico, for example, where it's like, oh, we got to hire the consultants, and we got to spend a bunch of money to for them to tell us things that we probably do know, but maybe don't want to be the person to do. So I don't know, we just talk about often this, uh, this thing of like inertia that happens at public companies all the time. And um, it takes a special type of person to come in, only be a week in the job, and uh, you know, crack some skulls together, and make things happen.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And maybe the previous management didn't want to be the bearer of bad news. Maybe they wanted an outside firm to kind of be the ones um uh, telling the bad news or or something. Um
1: Yeah, and they have an odd disclosure there where they actually my memory from your podcast is they phrased it as saying that the board that management said to the board to hire an actuary not that the board did it but that they made a point of saying that that the management of the company went to the board and said we need an outside actuary consultant on this and then i think the other thing is if uh which my memory is that um jack Byrne was from the underwriting uh, experience right he had been in it done actuarial stuff
2: yeah yeah, I know that's. They said that was his first job out of college after the Air Force. And it said he grew up in the insurance industry. I don't know exactly what his parents ran, um, what type of insurance company, but he's from New Jersey also. He lived in New Jersey. Um, and yeah, he had that background.
0: Jeff, do you know the story behind how he, I mean, got to Geico then, other than what Jacob hits on? His family was in the business. Uh, he was and...
1: overlooked for a job, correct? I mean, we haven't talked about this, but he had a very abrasive personality. I think he was a very. You don't say. Um... Yeah. And so, um, I think that, uh, he did a very good job of motivating people on the team with him and everything, but, but we've talked to some people like this. I mean, we talked to somebody, Andrew, who is, runs a bank and, uh, you know, it, basically he, he founded a bank because he was the CEO of another company and he and the board didn't get along enough, even though he had great results and, uh, same sort of thing, right? He wanted to do it his way. And, um, I, my memory, right. Is that he, uh, was Passover at, was it Travelers? I know later in his Travelers. career he had a chance to be yeah. involved with Travelers, so mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Which would have been a much bigger job, probably. I mean, Geico was big at that time, but the Travelers job was really big and really, I mean, that was the best brand name and one of the best brand names. Certainly the best brand name of one that wasn't a mutual, one like, like Allstate or State Farm, that would have been a really big sort of blue chip um, job to get in the industry. Kind of like Jamie Dimon,
0: right? Uh, getting exactly on, like you know, a job, That's having a chip on your right.
1: shoulder, yeah, and then going off yeah. on your own, and, you know, trying to make some of Because he was up, also yeah. really successful, really young, uh, Jack Byrne, and for the insurance industry, you know, to have been that like that at that age and everything, that, that was a pretty fast path that he was on.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And his son is actually runs Overstock.com, and he's been in the news mm-hmm. himself a little bit. Yep. Um, similar, but, um, and What's yeah. What's he in the news for? Um,
1: <laughs> well there you have a picture of do you have patrick up there yeah. andrew yeah, yeah uh, pa- I mean, this I've... is the
0: headline overstock ceo patrick burns uh maria butina story merits investigation rolling stone so what's well, going on there going, conspiracy going...
2: claims and a lot yeah. of a lot of claims Deep and state. maybe even earlier kind of an over overhype overhyped stock he was kind of running yeah. so a mix of kind of that stuff too
1: Yeah, if we go back like 15 years or something, he was, there was a hot stock, overstock, you know, it had been a dot-com type stock, and there was some short selling of it, which it was targeted by short sellers and stuff. And so there was a lot of him going after the short sellers and pushing for regulation of this stuff, investigation of this stuff, um, all of that kind of thing. Yeah, a real, you know, fight against someone else that way. And some of that is similar to his father, yeah.
2: And I need to do more research on the late 80s and into the 90s. But I, I think basically Byrne needed out of Geico to have more of a challenge. But I think Geico probably was ready for more of a peacetime leader um, at that point versus someone who really wanted to crack skulls and, and, and be in a fight uh, once they got on better footing later on. Um, and uh, But one thing I noticed of Byrne, too, in his letters, the way he writes, kind of reminded me of how Buffett was writing in in this time period too. I mean, Buffett talks about their underwriting loss being horrendous and um, disastrous. And and Burn a couple times at least says like, you know, they're profitable on a net basis. Things are getting better. But Byrne talks about anytime there's an underwriting loss brought up, completely unacceptable is like the word he uses or an unacceptable loss this year in this segment. And, and the previous management, I guess I never saw anything like that. It was more so like we had a loss, but this is the worst times we've ever seen before. And, you know, we we'll, we have a history of great underwriting. We'll get back to it. It's kind of like the vibe I was getting from them, I guess. So Byrne was definitely, I like seeing personally, at least I know it's just words, but completely unacceptable underwriting is a nice way to see the boss kind of talking about things uh, when it does happen.
0: Is, do you think he's sending a message to employees as well when he says that or just shareholders?
2: I think so Two employees. Uh, I think Buffett does the same thing with his top insurance managers and, and I guess maybe the way he praises the leaders of the business and, in letters and maybe leave some names out in other years too. But um, that's the thing too, with leaving New Jersey, it was major. It helped their short-term profitable outlook, but he mentions that it was about sending a message to other state regulators are going to see, wow, he might fire every employee in this state and um, he might act quickly. So maybe, The next day is going to raise rates quicker or approve your request quicker um, or take you more seriously. And the employees, I think it's a message to them. It's a message to the investors, everybody, uh, the move he did there.
1: Yeah, we should talk about that because in consumer insurance stuff in the United States, you would have to file in many states. For a rate increase to permission to charge that rate, basically. And so he went to like New York and New Jersey at the same time. New York said fine for the increase that they needed, right? And New Jersey wasn't moving on it. And so even if we just assume that, say, with social inflation and other things, you're going up 10% or more a year in terms of what you need to increase. If they're giving you the rate increases you need, but they're giving you a year or two slow on it, that's the difference between making a profit and having, for Geico certainly with their loss ratio, um, and and not making any money, right? Because that lag is going to cost you every single year that your policies are priced in 1973 dollars and it's 1974.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a major problem. They really had to catch up, and it says raise they raise rates 18% in 75, but 38% in 1976. So I mean, that 38% is definitely a catch up. Um, and New York, I think was one state when New Jersey kind of declined to him or at least put off the question of raising rates, New York, I believe it was in the 30% range that New York accepted rates being higher. And, and, um, and yeah, even the, the voluntary policies, the normal business, I, I do believe they still needed approval to raise those rates. Um, I think regulators usually you would think would be much more open to raising those rates because, it's customers who have much more flexibility on if the rate's too high, they could just leave and get policies elsewhere versus the assigned risk. I could see a little more hesitation if it's someone who literally can't um, find insurance anywhere. Uh, maybe the regulator is going to be much more cautious about what rate to charge on, on that policy, maybe. but.
1: Yeah, I think we should also talk a little bit about, like, the adverse selection possibilities here, where in insurance you could attract customers that isn't such a good thing for you to attract. And with Geico, with these rates, right, um, if you think about it, one reason, you know, I don't think they say it this way, but one reason why regulators may have allowed them to have very high um, underwriting leverage is that the regulators, for political reasons, want low rates in their state. And so they're much more likely to say for the company that's coming in as the lowest rates, let's have you grow. Now from a safety perspective, that's the worst to let the one with the lowest rates grow the fastest. And, you know, because the ones that are not wanting to grow a lot are probably the ones that might be pricing the policies more in line with what, you know, will turn out to be where everyone else needs to be in a while.
2: Yeah, that's, that's a great point. And that does remind me in in 1973 at the very end, I forgot to mention Geico removed occupational and age qualifications for drivers. So in 1974, 12.5% of their new policyholders were from groups that historically were excluded from the company. So um, they invested their heaviest investment in 73 or 74 in new marketing programs like uh, sales offices and stuff too. So they're still growth, growth, growth and um, letting in, changing who they're writing policies for too um, and and jeff what you mentioned too of um <clears throat> it's interesting from a regular st- standpoint too geico had huge losses and they charge low po- they're known for charging low rates to to uh to customers so you'd think um you know it's not like they're sitting on a 20% profit margin or something and just didn't want to um they they weren't just trying to raise rates to kind of protect the profit margin they're already known for low costs and they're still losing quite a bit of money um but um uh, yeah
1: One problem is inertia, right? So the regulator is probably trying to avoid having a large one-time increase and Geico is probably trying to avoid having one large time increases because they know that leads to cancellation, right? So the strategy for the insurers and for regulators a lot of the time is, okay, let's get you to a rate that makes a lot of sense in a few years, but let's do it at 10% a year and maybe inflation comes down and stuff. We don't want to hit someone with a 30% increase. Then it's going to be in all the newspapers and stuff, editorials about this and everything that, you know, look what they're doing wrong and, um, and so the, there's a tendency for both of them because with the acquisition cost and everything, you really don't want to have a large one-time rate increase because they know that they can always increase rates at you know 5% or something and no one will blink. But if you increase anyone's rates by 20%, you really increase the chance that you might lose them. And a lot of the cost in insurance is getting the person in the first place because the retention rates are so high. That you know the lifetime value is really high for someone once you have them but getting them in the first place is a big problem. I think we should talk about the difference with Geico and progressive be in terms of what parts of the industry they're in because I think a lot of people haven't thought about like non standard and preferred. Today, they've grown much closer together, but the history of the two companies is on completely separate sides of the business. So, you talked a little bit about USAA, for instance. Those are the companies that have done direct overtime, and Geico's a copy of the USAA um, idea. But Geico was preferred risk because, like you said, they had entire occupations and uh, ages, which they wouldn't write insurance, whereas someone like Progressive in their history quoted everybody. It might be a very high price, but they were willing to provide quotes on, you know, people in what were considered high risk occupations and ages, whereas Geico had entire portions of the possible risk population that they just wouldn't cover at all. Um, Like you were saying, you know, there's no offsetting thing for them that way. It's not like if you were in the wrong occupations and age, but had other factors that the model liked that they would write for you. They had entire things they didn't do. Um, So can you talk a little bit about like preferred and Geico's history that way um, and what that means in the industry?
2: yeah yeah you're right. Geico came up um really focusing on preferred risk um and so yeah, basically an insurance company um what's the quote there's no bad risk, just bad rates, so it's like you really could insure anything if you charge the right price i guess um but Geico really focused on preferred which is which means drivers who you know should be less likely to get into accidents um a sixteen year old boy who wants to drive fast to impress people like yeah could still find insurance policies but that's not a preferred risk you're you're looking more for uh i don't know government workers teachers or or people who are maybe like um you'd think t- to be more conservative people um and uh and that's who geico focused on um they i guess they kind of dropped some of that right near this tough period but right after when burn took over there's definitely multiple things in the annual report saying we're going back to focusing on preferred risk like kind of getting back to what they used to be. That was their their, um, their focus. And even if you look out to 1980, every year after Byrne took over, policies and force dropped each year, even through 1980. Um, I haven't looked too much past 1980 yet. but um, So Byrne was a person who did not care, or he wanted to shrink the business. He, he was not afraid of losing people. You brought up how management, you know, a big a big rate increase might lose people. I think the previous management was very afraid of losing people. Um, Jack Byrne was not afraid of that, and he, he was definitely willing to shrink the business and continue shrinking it um, for
0: years. Jeff, what do you think Buffett was watching and looking at during this time? I mean, obviously, he follows Geico. He has followed it his whole life. I'm just mm-hmm. curious, what do you think he was? Because we're going to talk about him getting involved, but just from his perspective, what do you think he was looking at?
1: people have emailed me about that and I don't know from the perspective of he said that there were rules of thumbs for reserve issues and that would be a specific thing that he was looking at and he may not even be mean the uh, company's annual report that he was reading though it might have been that he also could have been i mean buffett probably would have read the statutory report so like you know there's reports with the individual uh, insurance commissioners and stuff and if he was involved in insurance and stuff he might have seen those too they're not that different um you talk a little bit about that in the podcast about the difference between statutory um and usually it's it's not you know a major difference there's some stuff that in some things is excluded from capital um, so sometimes you can have a lot more capital than it appears because there's some statutory stuff that if you were in odd things Berkshire, I think might be in some that it wouldn't count it for capital that way. But otherwise, it's not an issue. I mean, they're very, very similar. Um, it's the deferred policy acquisition cost you talk about. And, you know, it's just it's it's more of a it's almost more of a direct um, uh, period comparison that's useful for solvency purposes as opposed to trying to match it up for gap. Um, but I think the other thing is that, you know, like we said how much they lost in the in the fourth quarter. Um, if you just think about it, almost half of the loss the next year could have been predicted just based on the idea that if you hadn't taken the actions that were supposed to improve things and if things were worsening through the fourth quarter, then given that these are on a one year lag and everything, it's hard to see how you could lose less than 90 million or something the next year uh, if it was so bad in the fourth quarter, because you know this is a high frequency business right so like the loss frequency is very high but the severity isn't usually radically different on each event um so it's not like a reinsurer saying we had a huge loss in the fourth quarter because you know of events that happened with weather or something you would know that the next year would be really bad that way um but yeah he said specifically uh reserves that he saw that they were inadequately reserving right
2: Mm -hmm. that's right yeah so maybe loss development tables and especially some of that disclosures in the statutory filings and stuff. Um, that's one thing I need to get better at with looking at insurance, the loss development tables where they break out um, going back many years. Uh, that's a little confusing to me still. Um, that's uh, that's one thing I'm sure he looked at, but um, also one thing to note too, of when Buffett did get involved, um, uh, the 1976, they had a major loss still. And that's when Byrne took over and things turned around. Major loss still in the first quarter and a little less in the second quarter, but still a pretty major underwriting loss. Burns stepped in halfway through that second quarter. Um, and by the third and fourth quarter, they still had underwriting losses, but low enough where they were profitable on a net basis. And I believe they raised capital in the open markets in either the third or fourth quarter. Um, and so I guess Buffett got involved once they were quarterly profitable on a net basis, at least. Um, I think with the filings... Um, you know, the prospectuses and stuff. I, I'm assuming uh, at that point in time, he could have seen that results were already getting a little better and then he could see Burns' attitude and stuff. So um, that's the point. He got involved versus in the podcast I mentioned. It kind of looked appealing to me, um, I guess, right when things were starting to get bad. I guess Buffett uh, had a little more knowledge to wait a little bit there.
1: Yeah, and with insurance things, like we were saying, um... You probably could predict that once it starts to get better for a few quarters that the rest of the year is going to be even better because, you know, we've already – there's no reason why the – People whose policies come up in April are going to have different reaction to the price increases than people who come up in June and everything. So he knew they had raised prices and were losing policies and everything in those quarters. So you could start to kind of annualize it, just like I was saying with the losses, you kind of need to annualize it and not just say, oh, we lost five million or something. Actually, you lost all of it in the fourth quarter. And likewise, once you start to turn a profit, if your business is all really similar, like Geico, like what what was Geico's uh, They're in that single line of auto insurance is what, 80 some percent or something? It was a very big number, right?
2: 80. Yeah, 80. Most of the other yeah. homeowner insurance was other, but yeah, is 80 or a little above that?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, this is a, you know, compared to most public insurers, people can invest in Geico, like Progressive and and like some other companies, is extremely almost monoline in terms of the the fact that the profits from the business, because the homeowner thing is not a big contributor to earning stuff, is, um, uh, you know, really focused on one type of business. It's almost like, you know, Apple with iPhone and things like that. Like if you knew they were going to increase prices, it would have a huge effect on the entire company as opposed to something that's much more diversified. Their big competitors would be a lot more diversified.
2: It is funny. Byrne does mention a few times early on that his goal is to diversify Geico um, because that's an issue from a standalone company standpoint. But I don't think he was ever anywhere near successful doing that. I think eventually they, they give that up. And I I think, um, one, it shows it's hard. I mean, Geico is great at the one thing they do. It's hard to be great at, at everything and, and enter other businesses. Um, and also from Buffett's perspective, I'm sure he liked his exposure to that one thing he didn't want. I don't. I don't think he wanted or needed Geico to diversify. He was already diversified on his own.
1: Yeah, Buffett talked about how I don't know. Sometime in the two thousands, one of his mistakes was he insisted that Geico do a credit card, and uh, you know, <laughs> because they had a loyal customer base and everything. And he said they shut that down pretty quickly, and it was entirely him forcing them to do it.
2: Investing in business is hard. Buffett's made some mistakes, and he's he's a smart guy. So there's
0: it is hard.
1: There's some hope for the rest of us.
0: Uh, Jacob, can you explain so then how he gets involved with Geico? Is it, you know, buying the equity? How did he structure it? Um, how did he, you know, invest in Geico again?
2: Yeah, so to raise capital, Geico had a preferred stock offering a convertible preferred. So that if you bought the preferred, uh, it would convert into common shares eventually. And so that was a offering uh, by Salmon Brothers and That's where most of his investment was in. He heavily was in the convertible preferred stock. Um, He also bought common stock in the open market. That was a smaller amount. I don't know if that... I assume it wasn't just because of liquidity. I mean, I know that in the stock offering, it's probably way easier to get the chunk he wanted um, versus the open market. I don't know if that was really an issue or not, or if it was more he wanted the convertible structure. Um, And I think in the Snowball and in some of the other books, he says to someone, like, I just put couple million in a stock that could go to zero tomorrow. And I, th- I don't think that was too much of a joke. I think, I mean, there was a chance Geico could have been bankrupt. He put a little money in the, the common shares. Um, and, I mean, there were some risks at the time. And slowly throughout the year, the risks went down and down. And I think pretty quickly, at least the next year or something, you know, it, it became pretty clear that they were not going to go bankrupt and that it was a good, good investment. But he did heavily go into the convertible preferred.
1: Yeah, I think we should talk about this capital raise a bit because uh, over the years I've gotten a bunch of emails from people saying that, you know, oh, well, Geico got special treatment because of this because of Buffett and that this was a a deal that way and that this wouldn't happen in public markets for people otherwise. But there's some complex um, sort of incentives for people here. Like, for instance, the insurance companies might want Geico to fail because uh, then it would reduce competition for them in the future, right? But they also would end up absorbing the cost of Geico failing probably, and they might absorb the cost in a less orderly way, and they're all pretty stressed at this time. They're. I mean, this isn't a good time for investments at this period. And, you know, they all hold stocks and bonds that are doing pretty badly uh, in this period. And uh, we've talked about their combined ratios being bad. Uh, The regulators don't want GEICO to pull out of all the states like they did New Jersey, right? Um, And then you also have the fact that Solomon thought that they could actually do this in a way where they would, you know backstop and stuff that this would be sold to the public if it couldn't be sold to all the interested parties like Berkshire and others in the industry so they and that might be part of Berkshire's eventual investment in Solomon and stuff is the experience they had here with Solomon you know but um, th- they also had the ability to do this in a way that they the people doing this knew that it wasn't in comp with too little capital right because when we talk about some of these bank things or whatever, like First Republic, right, the banks only put in $20, 25000000000 or something, and they had a gap of $100 billion, it turned out. So here, part of it is like Berkshire on its own. You've talked about how they weren't big enough to buy the whole company. So someone might have been really interested in buying all of Geico, but I don't know who in the industry would have been in a position to actually absorb that, given their own problems and their size. So they needed to have a way where they knew this would be enough to get Geico out of this.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. First, they got reinsurance first, um, which helped the risk, the the reserve situation, and how much risk Geico was taking on. And um, and yeah, that's that's definitely what you mentioned. It's it's that mix of one, if Geico failed, they would the other insurance companies would have to take on those those policies. The guarantee funds, where each time an insurance company fails, they they have to um, th- the losses on those policies get split between everyone in the industry. So you have that. I believe in the snowball, it's not a direct quote from one of the competitors. I think Byrne says it. So as long as it's true, Byrne says that maybe it, I think it's Byrne. Someone says that a competitor's like like heck, I'll I'll pay the, the you know, the losses just to have Geico go out of the industry. Um I don't know if that, that's exactly true or not. But well, also I, you have I, what's that?
1: Y- I was going to say, I think he says that travelers, he said travelers, you know, was just cowardly about it and stuff, but we had said he worked at travelers and everything. So, Uh, but yeah, he burns the source on that. I'm sure that some of them may have said that privately and everything. Sure. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Burn already didn't like travelers from being uh, passed over and then travelers did not do the reinsurance deal. Also, I believe it said, and, and, um, and yeah, but then the thing too is Geico could have emerged from bankruptcy with new shareholders, you know, the the shareholders could have lost money. They could have uh, emerged and, you know, maybe they would have had to compete with Geico and like after paying all those losses, they might have had to compete with them in the future if they emerged too. So it is kind of complex, but um, but yeah, I think it wasn't clear that they'd be able to get reinsurance from their competitors who they've been, you know, uh, lowering the prices on for so many years. I mean, that, that wasn't a clear cut thing. And then raising capital, yeah, Berkshire, I mean, yeah, Berkshire invested 19 million or something in the convertible preferreds. Uh, and they raised a lot more than that, they raised eight maybe eighty million seventy five million maybe um, and so there was a lot of other companies involved um, where um, Buffett was a great investor but i don 't think he was as big of a celebrity back then and, and stuff so um, you know I think there was other other investors who got involved, other companies and stuff that saw opportunity uh, in the offering um, and so I, yeah i 'm not sure if i 'm much of a believer in the the geico being one of those um great deal or i mean uh, unfair deals by any means that buffett got
1: yeah i i think um uh i think there there was a quote from davidson that he said that um someone had tried to con- to say you know take a meeting with buffett to burn and burn said no and stuff and he said who's warren buffett you know he said you just you idiot you just turned down a meeting with warren buffett this is the guy you need yeah. to talk to to do this deal <laughs> and everything
2: It's funny. Yeah, without uh, that, I mean, Buffett at least played one small role in them them, uh, surviving, you know, putting in money when they needed it too. So uh, that's funny that Byrne almost missed that meeting and things would have been different.
0: So you um, are currently in 1976 on your podcast. That's the most recent episode. So are you going to continue on with the rest of the series until ultimately, you know, they get acquired by Berkshire or what's your plans for this? uh, Yeah this uh uh you know uh, series you're doing
2: i want to do at least a couple more i want to do 1980 and maybe jump to at least do one more jump into like 1990 or something and see um i think it's interesting too because their market share got pretty big right before this and um i know by 1980 it was quite a bit lower and i i think growth was an issue leading all the way to buffett investing acquiring fully geico and And spending more advertising dollars after that point, so I want to uh, get more in the details and showing how they shrunk and then it, and then struggled to kind of get growth back going again. They spent more money on share repurchases, which is a classic uh buffett kind of stock um, in this period at least um, and so yeah, I want to do at least a couple more episodes. My mind uh needed to jump to something fresh in the meantime, and at the annual meeting Buffett mentioned he read the nineteen thirty something annual report for g m and it was one of the best. And so that kind of sparked my interest to jump back to the early history of General Motors. 1918 is the first one I have. I definitely want to get to the one he said was best. Um, I'm, I'm not going to do every year for these companies I cover, but I'm going to try to pick some that bounce around there. I might have mentioned earlier that um, it's just so interesting that Ford was really, really dominant in the early days with the Model T. GM kind of overtakes them. Um, and then you got the Great Depression, is the time period Buffett mentioned the report he was reading, where vehicle sales and the whole industry like kind of crashed around that time after they're just experiencing like endless growth in a new new industry, growth and optimism, and then all of a sudden the depression hits. So I think that'll be kind of an interesting time period to cover.
0: Jeff, is there uh, any time period or companies you could think of that would be good for you know Jacob to cover?
1: Some that you think he'd be interested in? We've talked about a lot of the ones that there haven't really been great books written about, you know, um, Teledyne has a book on it, but it's a book that's, I think, nearly impossible to get your hands on, um, for the average person in terms of price and availability and everything. And also is written from an insider with, so it's pretty dry and stuff that way. Um, but that's a one that's interesting and it's also a investor. It's Henry Singleton that Buffett says is the best capital allocator. Um, I think Capital Cities, uh, you know, there's only been uh, like, I think I've read one book on that. That was pretty good. And it's from someone who is inside the organization, not at the top. So there's very little discussion of the top there. Um, And and those are, you know, the there's also different time periods, you you know, from today. So I think that they've kind of been forgotten. We talk about like what companies are great compounders and everything. I feel like today people wouldn't think about those companies at all because it's been so long since they were public companies and they were successful as stocks but not famous consumer names or something like geico or gm
2: yeah those are great ideas teledyne was on my list um capital city cities wasn't but should have been so i'll definitely add that one on there and they're both so interesting just um teledyne growing from um you know using stock to make acquisitions then switching the opposite to buybacks and they got into insurance companies too so um might be interesting to look at how they ran that if it was more in the buffett style or or not but um and then yeah capital cities also would be a great one yeah
0: that's that's great jacob i'm curious through your own investing have you looked at insurance companies or has studying you know what can happen and just the history of geico and stuff has that kind of made you be like "Eh, i kind of want to stay away and just watch from the sidelines
2: i am interested and i look at some and and uh it is area i'd like to get into but um i haven't found one yet that i that i bought um and uh and so I like it, but I think I'd be, um, um, I think it'd be rare to make to find the right situation maybe for me. Um, but it's definitely an area I'd, I'm interested in and would would be open to. I own one stock that actually has an insurance subsidiary. Uh, it's one of their one of their pieces, but yeah, I, I haven't. Uh, besides that, I haven't got into any.
1: Yeah. So uh, one reason is because you talked about in the podcast, you'd rather own one that maybe pushes its capital a little harder, like like uh, Berkshire does. And it doesn't push as hard in terms of the underwriting aspect. So taking more, uh, whether you want to call it investment risk or whatever, certainly regulators would see it that way, of owning less in the way of bonds. I mean, the problem with a lot of insurers is that, honestly, they're not usually run the way that Berkshires run. And so when people imagine what an insurance business would be and how it compounds, a lot of them are going to go out and try to buy Almost all bonds they are not going to hold much in the way of cash and they're not going to hold much in the way of stocks and they're going to operate at underwriting ratios and things um, uh, lever underwriting leverage, you know, um, that focuses a lot on a mix of the two so that they can provide very steady earnings and very steady dividends. Right. That's what a lot of them like. And they're more diversified than many of these that we've talked about. Um, so they're not necessarily the best compounders, the same as we talk about with banks or whatever. It, a lot of it is that they're not as focused as these companies that we talked about, and they're not necessarily as driven with this idea of compounding as investors, maybe, that they adopt certain strategies, you know, that are very different from Berkshire. I mean, Berkshire owns a utility company and it doesn't pay dividends and it grows. You could try to duplicate the same thing, but there's not going to be a public company that looks like the, the utility inside of Berkshire because they treat their capital totally differently in terms of their approach. And there's not a lot of companies that um, are going to meet sort of the way that you were talking about it, about being an investment-focused thing. I mean, there have been some, right? There was an attempt with um, Greenlight and everything with um, Greenlight uh Re, you know, reinsurance and stuff using a manager who would be focused on doing that stuff. Though he was long short and stuff, and also trying to provide them with more st- steady investment returns than they might get from being just heavily exposed to equity.
0: Doesn't Third Point have a vehicle too for that company? I'm
1: sorry, which what did you say?
0: Third Point, Dan Loeb, don't they also have? A- yeah, I mean, it seemed like that was a, a theme, right? Hydro managers setting up their own reinsurance business, and it doesn't seem like it's been too successful. It, it may
1: have turned, but reinsurance has been terrible for like the la- most of the last it's not good for about 17 years or so i mean there might have been a brief period that was better but certainly 10 years or so until the last you know sometime during covid gotten better but there was way too much capital in that and we, we didn't really talk about reinsurance but um that was an important part of geico's plan and i think you talked about on the podcast so we could explain what reinsurance is maybe um Basically, Geico kept, I think, 15 cents on the dollar and gave the other 85 cents um, of the premiums they collected to the parties that were doing the reinsurance, and then they could cancel it eventually and all of that, but basically guarantee them for a certain period of time that they would just take all of their business, and so it was almost as if they could shrink by doing that, that basically you're moving it all off with that small part we said that they keep and everything, but it frees the reinsurer up from... I'm assuming, I don't know how these were written, but from um, the actual claims processing stuff and all that. So Geico not really turning a profit on the 15 because, you know, they would have to do all of that. And the reinsurer basically is just taking risk without all the administrative stuff or any of the cost of acquiring the policy.
2: That's a good point. Yeah. And their, uh, I mean, their expense ratio is right around 15% too. So I don't know if that's why, I don't know if that kind of cancels out the, the overhead of it or not, or if that's kind of separate, but, but yeah, that's a good point.
1: So what we're talking about there is like the reinsurer's taking which I think is how people think about insurance is more the reinsurance model. It's purely taking the risk. Right? It's not it's not about the marketing stuff and all of that, but the for a lot of insurance companies a lot of the business isn't just about the here are the risks that we could take and we take them on um, maybe in large policies that Berkshire does that go through brokers that are these huge policies. That's what it's like because it's just pennies on the dollar for the cost involved of all of that. But for a lot of these things, it's getting your name out there in the public and then also except for companies like USAA and Geico. It's not just that the other ones had agents; they also didn't know how to process things for claims and everything. Set up for a direct mail and a phone-based thing instead of having it go through agents. Normally, people would just like call up their agent and say, "Here's my problem stuff," and it would work through that.
2: Yeah, that, that's a great point. Um, and it is tough to get yourself comfortable. Um, for me, at least in the present day, of uh, you know getting comfortable with the underwriting record and ability of of each company. Um, you know, you got to have both. Even if the company does have a great investment. Um, investor and investment track record, maybe like a green light. Re, it's still making sure you're comfortable with the underwriters. Um, for those to match up, it, it's like a rare situation, and I think that's uh, it's it's tough to find.
0: And now you fast forward to the present. I mean, we talk about it on the podcast often. It's just, I mean, you have Todd Combs as the CEO of Geico. That just kind of something that's not talked about a lot, but that's a a very you know impressive job very you know has a ton of responsibility and doing that so it's always they kind of like sweeping under the rug i mean we talk about all the time in the podcast but when they announced that he was the ceo it was just kind of like not big news or anything like that it was just like oh yeah by the way a little footnote todd combs is the ceo of uh ceo of geico
2: yeah he works a a crazy schedule it sounds so i i hope uh hope he uh he doesn't burn out there but yeah, I know he he had some background in progressive it said in the interview and I don't know exactly how much uh direct he got to to see of their actuarial process of their underwriting. Um but maybe he has a little bit of background in that area from his early days, I don't know. Um and but yeah, that'll be interesting to see how Geico does.
1: There's, you know, obviously some succession planning issues there and stuff because like we talked about with Geico, you have these periods where someone was running it for a very long time and then you have this brief period, you know, um, where, so, where there's new management in for just a few years and the same sort of thing. I don't know how long like Tony nicely was there and, and, um, later, but Geico's had a few very long-term CEOs, but then it's also had these periods where it's had trouble finding a new CEO, um, you know, or someone came in and ran it for a few years and left on successfully. I mean, the management team you're talking about was only there for what, like four years or less.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Four or five years
1: got it
0: cool well you are going to profile gm teledyne you're gonna add capital cities to the list <laughs> uh so we're gonna to have to bring you back on uh the podcast we'll call it like maybe you know like uh, financial history or something like that and just you know nerd out about what you've been um profiling on your podcast and everyone definitely should go and subscribe to his podcast the 10k podcast on spotify and itunes are you on youtube yet jacob
2: no i haven't done youtube but i think it's on just on most other other things yeah Um, so you guys dominate youtube so maybe i'll have to give it a try
0: (laughs) no you know what's funny is i mean we talk about it i mean we you know uh Sometimes when we record a podcast, I'm like, oh, we got to talk more out loud about these numbers because 80 or 90% of listeners are actually people on the podcast side of things. So uh, definitely be sure to check out his podcast. I love the description of it, analyzing antique annual reports and collecting fine financial statements. So, Jacob, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast with Jeff and myself, where can people reach out to you uh, to learn more about everything that you are doing?
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun talking. Um, I'm on Twitter. I think it's MCD underscore investments. Um, You can find me there.
0: MCD underscore investments. I'll put all of that information down in the description below. I uh, thank everybody so much for tuning in with the three of us on the Focus Compounding podcast. Make sure you hit that subscribe button wherever you are listening or watching us right now. Uh, and of course, as always, if you're interested in learning more about our money management services, you can reach out to me directly at andrew at focuscompounding.com. I uh, thank you everybody so much for all the support. Take care.